Today's episode of RBC Disruptors was recorded in front of a live audience. Patrick Pichette, somebody that can bring a big company perspective, an emerging competitor perspective, a management consulting perspective, we think is incredibly valuable for us to be talking about at this point in our cycle. Joining him in conversation is the one and only John Stackhouse with the Office of the CEO, and I will let both of you come on up and take it away. Thanks, Kirk. We're so lucky to have Patrick here. We could have him up here for three or four hours, and I think uh, everyone will be glued to what he has to say. There's no person I know who's better positioned to talk about all the issues that you're wrestling with. Patrick was a senior executive at Bell uh, during many of its most interesting days mm-hmm. of trying to come to grips with disruption, so we're going to get to that. Was part of the core leadership team at Google over a decade uh, th- through some incredible stuff that we'll get to, and now at Anovia, uh, working with us as well as uh, a lot of other interesting Canadian organizations. He's going to be a key ally for us over the next uh, while. So, Patrick... Thank you for making the time. Thank you so much for the invitation, and good morning, everybody. Pleasure to be here. So before we get into Patrick's extraordinary career and insights, I want to talk a bit about his uh, extraordinary uh, pastimes. They're not really pastimes. It's, it's a new life in They're some, some life, ways. Yeah. He's an inveterate traveler and adventurer, goes to places that you've never heard of, does extraordinary things uh, like biking the, uh, the continental uh, mm-hmm. divide. Tell us about your latest adventure. So my, la- my latest adventure was probably in late July. I had a Twitter board meeting. I got a text message from a friend saying, here you're going to be in San Francisco, so you've got to come five days earlier. And I wrote him back, Jeff. I said, so what's up, Jeff? He says, Yosemite is calling. Let's go climb. I end up in San Francisco uh, five days before the board meeting. Yosemite's closed, right? Because there's fires everywhere. You'll remember a couple of months ago. And I say, well, Yosemite's closed. And he's like, no, 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 it's not closed. Um, So we take off for Yosemite, and it happens that the valley is closed. The upper part of Yosemite National Park is technically open. And because he's best buddies with the search and rescue team, and we basically crashed a search and rescue team, and we climbed with the search and rescue team for four days. We did Cathedral Peak, these amazing peaks in Yosemite. And you should know that two and a half years ago, I'd never touched a rope in my life. I'd never rock climbed anything. And um, so I spent, yeah, th- two, three days uh, basically kind of hanging off on these granite walls, uh, looking down thousands of feet and thinking, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> and then when you come back to camp, like an hour later, you're having your beer, then you say, well, that wasn't that bad. I could do that again. <laughs> and now I'm on my way to Nepal in a couple of weeks where um, Jeff, my friend who basically told me, hey, you got to come. He's a famous ophthalmologist. And um, in, Jul- in, no, in late April, early May, he phoned me and said, Patrick, I need you in Ethiopia for a week and a half. And so I'm like, Ethiopia? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah we're doing cataract surgeries. So I basically changed my calendar, showed up in Ethiopia in Addis Ababa, and then we kind of flew to uh, Abraminch, which is in the southwest, uh, completely rural part of Ethiopia. And in five days, through an amazing work of uh, his team, uh, five surgeons gave sight back to over 1,000 people that were completely blind, couldn't see. And, and so he just phoned me the, the other day. He's like, oh, you got to be in Nepal because we're doing the same thing in Nepal. And, and then my daughter basically said, oh, you're going to Nepal? 
So there's a mountain I want to climb in Nepal. So I'm basically going for a week of same work and then a couple of weeks to climb a couple of peaks in Nepal and then I'll be back. It's amazing. Every time I see Patrick, he's got his backpack, which he's got over at the table there, and he's either coming from somewhere or going somewhere. We're going to come back to this because it's, a, it's got some great insights on how the world is changing, and, and this is critical for our business. But I want to ask you, Patrick, to take us through um, a bit of your journey uh, and the three chapters of Bell, Google, and Inovia. Mm -hmm. Let's start with Bell, classic uh, incumbent firm, regulated company, uh, trying to ch change. You go in there, what is 15 years uh, ago now, um, really smart people doing all sorts of innovative things, but boy, the world is changing faster yeah. probably than the organization can. Probably sounds familiar to a lot of people in uh, this room. Wonder in hindsight what you can reflect on and share about Bell's culture that allowed it to innovate, number one, and then secondly, maybe held it back a little more than it should have. Yeah, no, it was, a, as you said, it was a really interesting time because it was the first internet kind of wave, the late 1990s. And, um, and Bell had, there was a recognition in the fiber of the company that they needed to do something. Um, and that's when Michael showed up, Michael Sabia. Uh, it was a very difficult time because it's, it's a time where it had lost all of its financial capacity and it needed to transform itself. And so if you look at the, um, the courage that this company had to go through in a very short period of time, it was actually astounding. He forced the company to completely transform itself despite having no financial flexibility. And he did three things. Uh, Bell did three things. One is, it actually had to completely change its infrastructure. Like the physical infrastructure, the physical plant at Bell had to change from what was the old kind of TDM networks, which are the old phone lines that you recognize at home, to an IP network. Um, it not only had to do that, but at the same time, and that you don't see. There's no physical evidence of it in your day-to-day but it was a profound transformation. Then the second thing that M Michael kind of did and led, and I, I actually did with him, which was a lot of fun, we had to rewrite all the collective agreements of the company in a very short period of time. Essentially, Bell had collective agreements that were written in the 1970s. I remember that the first collective agreement I read was, it's 1974, right? The fax machine is not invented yet. Like, we don't even remember what a fax machine looks like today, but the fax machine was not invented. Um, mother stayed at home, and so there was always somebody available at home so that, you know, having a bell technician coming this afternoon was fine. Like, all of the wiring, the entire sets of collective agreements were written in the spirit of the 1960s and 70s. Well, we're now in 2000 and everybody's working, there is nobody home. People need to see you on the weekend, and they need to see you on the weekend at 1.30, because at 10.30, you're at the swimming pool with your kids, and at 3.30, you're at somebody's party with another kid. And that's life today, right? And so we had to completely rewrite these collective agreements without stopping, without ending up in the ditch. So for, and writing collective agreements, thinking of what's the next 15 years look like? 
And then the last thing that Michael did is he basically um, recognized that mobile was going to be a big transformation, and he needed leadership for mobile. And so together as a team, uh, we basically, so that on the good side, and then he hired George Cope, which was actually a, a brilliant move. On, if you say, you know, what are the mistakes? The mistake was Jean had the right idea, but the, the, the moves that he did at the time uh, nearly crippled the company. I want to probe a little deeper on, on, the, on the culture challenge because you've touched on something that I think will resonate with, uh, with certainly with this group. Uh, profound culture change, both at Bell and here. What, what should we learn from what Bell did and didn't do uh, in terms of its uh, culture to, to, uh, to make those pivots? A great asset that RBC has, it's all its people. The, the tension is the following. I always describe it as, when I was at Bell and I ran the operation, so I had 20-some thousand employees, you're running an aircraft carrier. Whether you like it or not, it's an aircraft carrier. And Bob, who's in Smith Falls, Ontario, or who's running around, right, if you give him a change every week, he's going to get confused as hell. It just will not work. So, and yet, you need to turn aircraft carriers. They need to change direction. And so the, the real tension is how much change do you inflict on people and how fast can you make that change happen? And so for me, there's an issue of consistency in the message, but at the same time, people need to know that on the side, we are trying things, and these things are celebrated. And I can tell you, when I was at Google, we had this thing called TGIF. So every Friday afternoon, we got together, the entire company, and we'd get on stage and we'd talk about the week, and then there was kind of a period of questions. But every week there was a, a team that would show up on stage from some department, any department, whether it be engineering, mostly engineering and software, but also like the people ops team, the finance team, somebody would show up. And they'd talk about something crazy they're doing. And, and I, I saw stuff blow up. I saw stuff fail on stage. We saw, like, and the message was we're trying stuff. We just try stuff. We just try to push the limits. We're, we're going in the corners where nobody wants to go. And that is a piece of a culture that is absolutely critical when you're in a big shift like what the bank is living today. So take us to the Valley. 2008, you're plucked from uh, Bell to uh, be the CFO of Google. It's just mm -hmm. come out of its uh, IPO. It's still a very different organization than uh, certainly than the Google we know today. Uh, than we know today. But you've gone from the aircraft carrier to probably like a, a Zodiac, except yeah. it's a, a Zodiac with drones so it can hover around. What was the biggest surprise in moving to uh, the Valley in 08? Um, it's, it was both a surprise, and for me, it was like this breath of fresh air. Just if, you, if you're done kind of climbing and you get to a cliff where there's like this updraft, it's like, whew, it just kind of... Um, the optimism. The, the, this cocktail of optimism deep sense of technology mastery, people understand technology. And with the understanding of technology, the, um, the willingness to try, innovate, but everything with a global mindset. It's a completely different mind shift from what we're used to. It's not like you're the Royal Bank of Canada, right? In Silicon Valley, 
you're just DocuSign. You're not DocuSign of the U.S. You're DocuSign. You're Google. That's just such a profound difference in the way that, and the whole world is there, just so like Toronto. How does that change an organization apart from the ambition of wanting to serve a billion or more people? What does mm. that do to the DNA? It, it's, it's dramatic because when, when, I, when I took my job, um, I had this long conversation with Eric because we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we... We'd so this would be Eric Schmidt, Eric the Schmidt, uh, executive uh, chairman. Exactly, executive chairman. And so in the very first weeks that we were there, I, I came to see Eric and I said, Eric, I have this issue. We have no shortage of cash. We have a very strong balance sheet. And I have all these business cases that want to get funding from really smart people. And they, I need a filter because our bottleneck is people. We're going to run out of people before we run out of cash to actually develop these ideas. And so how do I think about that? So Eric said, I, I've solved it. He said, because we have all these issues on capital allocation, we just now have the simple rule. Unless you're going to have a billion users, one billion users, we shouldn't invest in your business. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I was like, wow, this is a good idea. <laughs> and it focused the entire, during my time at Google, right, think of it, we, in the, in, you're kind of like, I joined in 2008, so I was a, so we launched, I mean, YouTube had been purchased like a couple quarters before, um, the double-click platform. We launched Android. Uh, the real Android was launched like six months after I joined. Uh, within six months of me joining, we launched Chrome, uh, Chromebooks. We actually converted Google Earth to Maps. I mean, you think of all of the products, obviously search. You think of all of the core products that Google have been growing over the last decade. And they all passed that test. They, and every failed experiment that Google has done was always shooting for a minimum of a billion users. And it shapes the culture. It shapes the conversation. Like, I had people show up at my desk, and I mean, I, I, I swear I did this. They're going to have, like, they show me this great, and it was a good business case. And, but after six years, they would have 300 million users. And I'd kick him out of my office. <laughs> and say, so you're wasting my time. You're wasting everybody's time. Do something consequential and come back and see me. I've heard Larry Page talk about uh, the, the early days of, of Google Maps and how they looked at MapQuest. And it was, it was OK, but it was kind of inadequate. And that's very much the Google mindset. If, if something is just OK or it's good, let's crush it. Like, let's find all the technology we can to make it awesome. Yeah. When they look at other service sectors, maybe like financial services, what do they see that's not awesome? And how would they change I, it? I, let me turn your point around a little bit in the sense that there's two ways to look at this, these issues. One of them is, and we all fall in that trap, it's broken, how do we fix it? That's one kind of dialogue. You can go down that path. And there's another one, which is, hey, there is a changing, there's 
because of technology, which is the Silicon Valley approach typically, because of technology or because of other factors, there's just this amazing opportunity. And that is also important in the dialogue in which you approach things. Um, it's seeing the opportunity. And, and what, what Larry and Sergey did... So it's, it's not so much about fixing a problem, break, fixing something that's broken, it's about seeing exactly. that opportunity. Take banking, right? I'll take risk management. Um, we had this opportunity in the past because somebody came with their checks every two weeks, so we had a connection with these people. And that connection gave us this kind of like option to actually serve our customers better because we bumped into Mr. Jones and Mrs. Jones or Monsieur Tremblay and Mrs. Madame Tremblay every couple of weeks. And what's interesting is, here, let me turn that into the opportunity. Today, there is so much data on Mr. and Mrs. Jones that we don't harness that is at our fingertips and gives us, I would argue, 50 times more opportunities than you had 20 years ago when they came with their paycheck. If you actually look at all the data, it's screaming at you. But you have to look, you have to spend time in the data. And, and that is such a profound opportunity that every banker has today. And this is why, that's the promise of AI. That's the promise of machine learning. All this big data can be mine, and it can surface you opportunities that you never had before. And to me, that's the big moment for financial institutions. It's data, and it's technology. It's actually using the, it's not only data. It's this, this millennial generation is actually a good proxy of that. You have a complete generation. Like, I'm a bit different, but people my age, our age, are typically... You see these things, these waivers you have to sign, and we kind of read it because we're... The new generation, they go scroll down the page and they say, accept. They don't care. They don't care if you see every step of their way. They're like, give me benefits, right? Yeah. And they're willing to share everything. They do not care about security. They do not, it's like, just give me benefits. Their, their attention span is zero. Their view of transaction cost is zero. They're, they're multitasking, right? Um, and so there is a, the, 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 the technologies that we have today make transaction cost in terms of time and cost zero. That's what the expectation is. And data enables it, but the medium also enables it. And we should actually leverage these two big poles to actually kind of recreate the way that we live. So you retired from Google. You yeah. probably didn't need to work another day in your life, um, but true. you set out on this mission. Tell us about it. So when I turned 50, uh, 52, my kids were gone. Um, I had the bad fortune of seeing a few of my friends die of cancer or other things. And it was the perfect moment for me to actually... And at Google, I was going to do the same thing for the next five years that I had done. Like, the place was basically... Like, I, we set up the machinery, and it's running. And we're hiring 2,000 people every 90 days. And I'm putting 40,000 square feet of real estate every Monday morning. And I'm 100, serving 100,000 meals of microbiotic kind of cut carrots every day around the world. And everything is working, right? So now it's like, oh, it's going to be the same thing. So I thought, okay, perfect time to take a break. My wife uh, and I, and I have this famous letter, if you want to read on, online, that I wrote to our employees because they're good friends. So I basically said, 
this is the perfect time to go back to school for me. But I did my own. And, and so I took two years, and what I did is the following. I was on an anthropological survey. I was on a physical journey, and I was on an intellectual journey. You know that pile of 20 books that you have beside your bed that you never have time to read, that you fall asleep on page six every night? I combed through my list, and it was absolutely formidable. And so I actually took two years. I have my backpack, which is here, which I just bought when we started, and I basically saw the world. I had TripAdvisor, Kayak, Airbnb, and then all my friends around the world, and we basically lived in a backpack for two years. In 2016, I was at home maybe 30 days, mostly doing laundry. Um, when we came back, the two things that I've recognized, three things that I've recognized. One is the human species is incredible at hoarding. It's a deep, innate need of humans to hoard. Um, and we are an incredible predator and we're decimating the planet, and I saw this live everywhere. I went to Antarctica, I went to Everest Base Camp, I went to all these places nobody goes to. Um, and, um, and then the other thing that I recognize is how lucky I was to be Canadian. I had won the lottery. I was born in Canada. And so I could live anywhere in the world, I could do anything I wanted. And so my question was, what's the best use of my time? And the best use of my time now is to actually give back to my country. And what's the best way to give back to my country is to actually help build the next 25,000 jobs in our country. How are you doing that? And so I joined Inovia. I joined a small, very successful um, venture firm that actually invests in young entrepreneurs in Canada. And we got together, and what we did is, with actually the support of the Royal Bank, which is, I'm very thankful for, so that we can actually take the Canadian companies that instead, because when I was at Google, I'm guilty as charged again. The minute that a Canadian company takes off, it gets buy out. Just Amazon will show up, Google, Microsoft. I mean, you see it in Montreal, you see it in Toronto, Kitchener. And the answer is not that. The answer is, hey, you're, you're a young entrepreneur. You've built your business for six, seven years, right? You're on the tipping point of taking off. The answer is don't sell. We'll refinance you. We'll take out in the cap table the early investors. We'll give you the runway for 10 years. Let's build great institutions. What have you learned about this next generation of entrepreneurs who you're working with and investing in? What, what should we know about them? Uh, this is a great part of the story. 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you finished from Kitchener-Waterloo and you had a, your engineering degree in computer science. You took off for Silicon Valley. No questions asked. Or you worked at RIM, and that was it. Um, in the last five, seven years, the world has pivoted. Canadians stay in Canada. I mean, some go to Silicon Valley. It's always continued to be the grass is greener next door. But more and more, you can see it in Montreal with the... And by the way, we're getting great support from our government, and we should be thankful for that. The government of Canada, the government of Quebec, the government of Ontario, they're investing in the next generation of AI, machine learning, infrastructure for, so that all this academic stuff can go into the industrial landscape. And, um, and so these entrepreneurs are staying. These women, these men, they're super smart. They want to build it here. They're independent, much more independent. They have self-confidence like they've never had before. And they're your next billion-dollar business. And so you have to stay close to them. You have to stick by them. And by the way, 
as a bank, you have to be thoughtful about this because um, at Inovia, I can say I'm really, again, thankful because when we set up this fund, we needed a line of credit, and it's RBC that gave us our line of credit. And now let me tell you a secret. Two months ago, three months ago, before we actually launched our fund, when we announced quietly that we were going to fundraise, um, an American bank came to see us, and they gave us a term sheet before we even asked for it. And they gave us a term sheet that was insanely good. So the Americans are also taking notice. And SB, Silicon Valley Bank and every they're all going to show up here. And they're going to be super aggressive. So don't be, like, this is our own turf. Don't let it go. Be smart. Stay close to these young entrepreneurs and also stay close and watch what the guys next door are doing. Because they know now this is a great pasture to be on. So they're going to come hard. And there's no reason for you not to win. And you certainly won our business. So thank you for that. You spent a lot of time with millennials. You're kind of a millennial. Uh, in a it taints like this. <laughs> How should we be thinking differently about millennials in the last couple of minutes? Oh, they're wonderful. They're so good. Like the upcoming generation, I love them. They're full of piss and vinegar. <laughs> this, I mean, they, I mean, my, the feminism, the LGBT, the what are you talking about with cannabis, the, this instantaneity, the multitasking, the global mindset. Um, and so what's great about this generation is they're connected. They're connected to the entire world. They see what's going on in Ukraine just as much as what's going on, a little bit less in China because of the Great Firewall. But nonetheless, they see the whole world. They're connected. Their friends are from the whole world. Look at, look at the city of Toronto. The whole world is here. It's over these kind of games of... And so they're connected. They're instantaneous. They're willing to share a ton, but they're expecting a lot. They expect transaction costs, time cost to be zero. They expect because they grew with the computers, that's all they know, they expect a wow factor. They expect the answer to be, well, why, why did you pick Airbnb? So much better, right? Why do you take Uber? So much better. Like, it, it's a step function better. And so I think that as a, as a financial institution, it, look, it's a generation thing, right? You still have a big bulge of kind of boomers and everything else. But this generation is shaping tomorrow. And they are telling you today, right, I want to be served in a different way. You can't miss that boat. I want to squeeze in one quick question, though, because someone raised this yesterday here about all that we're hearing. It's kind of scary. It's unnerving. And maybe people of a certain age feel a little more intimidated by all this change coming at them. You've seen waves and waves of change in the, the incarnations that you've walked us through today. Mm -hmm. Just quickly, how do people when they're leaving today, maybe have a bit of that fear because it's a good motivator. Yeah. Uh, um, but also, how, do, how, how should we all be thinking about disruption and these, uh, these challenges that are coming? This is a great, like you should feel confident about the fact that you're looking ahead. And that is, like that's half the battle. Um, you should ask the question all the time, how much experimentation are we doing? How much failure do we have? If you have no failure, you're gonna be screwed. You need a ton of failures. The question is, you need to fail fast, you need to fail small, you gotta experiment and learn from it. And so you should, you should get a lot of communication about tons of failures and, and, and the tons of learnings and then what's working out of that and then what can, when can I bring it to my customer, right? Um, that's the second piece. The third piece is, 
Hang out with millennials. They're wonderful. They're building tomorrow with you. Just stick around with them and just watch them go. They have the answers. They're just telling you what they need and what they want. And they're wonderful. So go for it. Thank you so, so much for this great opportunity. Patrick, thank you. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced and edited by Vocal Fry Studios. You can reach us at RBC Disruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. Thanks so much for listening.